Hey, folks, welcome to another episode of Footnotes, helping you become a more informed advocate, neighbor, and believer. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby. And on this episode of Footnotes, we have a guest who's working on an issue that is very near and dear to me. As a historian, I don't at all believe that racism and white supremacy and the effort to exploit black bodies and black labor just disappeared after the Civil War and emancipation. And so one of the things I always say is that racism never goes away, it adapts. So I'm always curious about what are the legacies of race-based chattel slavery? How did racism and other forms of racial exploitation adapt and change after the abolition of slavery? And I am convinced that one of the ways it has evolved and one of the legacies of slavery is our criminal legal system, and more specifically, the way we incarcerate people and the way we kill people. So in this episode, we are talking about the death penalty. We're talking about what it takes to abolish the death penalty. We talk about some of the injustices around the death penalty, racially speaking, yes, and how disproportionate numbers of black people are put to death by the state. But also we talk about intellectual disabilities and what that has to do with the death penalty. My guest today is Joya Aaron Thornton. She is the founder and executor of the Faith Leaders of Color Coalition. She works actively to defend people who are on death row and advocates for their exoneration and also lobbies to get states to abolish the death penalty and is even working at the federal level to get sentences commuted and the death penalty abolished. We explore lots of different topics like what South is she from? Because there's not one South, there's many different Souths. We talk about the role of hope in justice work. And we even talk about reaching across the political aisle for bipartisan coalitions to abolish the death penalty. So enjoy this interview, this conversation with Joya Aaron Thornton of the Faith Leaders of Color Coalition on Footnotes. Joya Aaron Thornton, welcome to Footnotes. So glad to have you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. You know, I've been tugging at you for a while and you gave in. So I like I love it. (laughs) I love it when people advocate for themselves, especially for a cause like this. Genuinely, really and truly, we have to we have to ask for what we want. And so I'm so glad you did. And my listeners may know by now that um, All of what we're about to talk about from the criminal legal system to incarceration and most specifically to the issue of capital punishment and the death penalty, those are very near and dear to me. I I think they're honestly extensions and legacies of race-based chattel slavery. And so if we abhor that institution and that practice, we ought to be concerned about its legacies and its bitter fruit that remains to this day. So we will get into all of that. First of all, we need to know about you. I think I saw that you grew up in Memphis and Louisiana, uh, New Orleans specifically, right? Um, right, right. So all up on that Mississippi River. I lived in the Mississippi Delta, Arkansas okay. side, Phillips County. And so I keep trying to tell people there's not one South. No. There are many Souths. <laughs> so right. being a Southern uh, born and bred Tell us about the kind of South you experienced and what people may get wrong or misunderstand about it. 
So I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, right? But I also spent a significant amount of time in New Orleans because I have familiar roots there and I also have collegiate roots there. I am the daughter of a Baptist pastor, but by trade, he is a chef. I don't get to mention that a lot in interviews. My dad is a great chef. He's like, start telling people I'm a chef. And also... (laughs) My mom, she's a teacher, and by trade, she was a writer. So growing up, she wrote a lot of plays, and she was involved in a lot of social justice movements. I can remember at seven years old, seven and six years old, me and my sister had on shirts that read Cry Freedom, Mm. which if you remember, and if you were vigilant during the time of the reignited apartheid um, after Nelson Mandela, was released from jail in 1990, that really just opened up my world to international movements and oppression mm. and liberation. So that, that is old. kind of thread. That's yeah. the thread that I come from in the home because it starts at the home, right? Yes. So before like all of the other things start permeating your brain through school and through friends, uh, love interests, neighborhoods, you have to have that foundation. And I'm really grateful that I was able to grow up with Black artwork in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellis Wilson, his famous funeral procession. Um, before I thought of the Cosby show, I thought of my home. Whoa. John Mikel, Basquiat, and others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I always had a really strong pulse for Black and Indigenous creativity and identity um, from my trips to New Orleans, but also being in Memphis, right? Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of background as far as my home, but if you all know, you know, Memphis in 1968. Yeah. We we were the scene and the setting. I won't say that we were responsible. A lot of people like to say that Memphis are responsible. Like, mm-hmm. then y'all keep Dr. Martin Luther King. We were the setting and the scenery um, mm-hmm. for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King um, at the Lorraine Motel, which is now the Civil Rights Museum. Yes. In- it's, and um, the city still, it's, it's still vestiges of that are left from what happened in 1968 um, when he came down for the I Am A Man sanitation strike. Um, and what this looks like, of course, is discrimination, polarization. Um, I always say in Memphis, you're either with the white people or the black people, yep. even though there's other ethnicities that are involved. So these are like common themes of the South. Like the South is a melting pot, right, Jamar? Like there a are a lot other of different people. people. Absolutely. <laughs> in the South. But but from what we see that are that is portrayed in the media, you would only think that it's a black world and a white world mm-hmm. because those are the loudest and the strongest voices. So I didn't experience racism um, growing up in Memphis in either New Orleans. Um, mm. And this is teen, right? To 18 years old, because I'm going somewhere with that. Um, but I heard stories and I was always a young child that wanted to sit at the feet of elders and yeah. hear the stories of their soul. Okay. <laughs> right. And I didn't know what I was going to do with those stories, you know, now, you know, as the ED of flop, but the, those stories have helped me understand um, folks uh, as people and also where they have come from and where they are now. Mm-hmm. So as a millennial, <laughs> you know, we like to say we're the greatest generation. I don't know what your generation is, Jamar, but, you know, millennials. Millennials, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, as millennials, we believe we are, you know, the greatest generation, but we have to really pay homage 
to the generations yeah. that before us, even if we didn't understand that growing up um, in secondary sure. school. Yeah, of course. You're speaking my language as a historian. Um, I came to discuss. So, so first of all, Memphis was the big city for me when when I was <laughs> in the Delta. Uh, Memphis was the closest urban metropolitan area. It was a little bit over an hour away from where we were in um, uh, Phillips County, Arkansas. And so we, I lived up there basically. That was my second home. That's where I always flew out of, um, would eat there, special occasions there, all that stuff. But it was so interesting to me. Memphis is like the 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 city that the eastern half of Tennessee forgot mm-hmm. or doesn't want to claim, you know, right. that sort of nashville area and then move even further east it because it's a black city you know um yeah, 68%. Uh, 68% wow right so like i said it's different souths and so if people think of tennessee and you think of east tennessee or nashville or some of these other areas like there's a different part of tennessee that memphis is still in and i think it's it's really shaped by the delta in ways that uh other parts of the state are not. So you said you grew up you didn't really experience racism. I'm assuming because most of your context was was like all black or predominantly black. Predominantly black. Um, yeah, that's the world you grow in. You often don't experience the world for real. Now, I know some people have different experiences. They learn about the world through trauma. Um, sometimes adults don't guard children as closely as they should be. So they're experienced a lot earlier to things. But no, I didn't through my church and civic groups. My parents <laughs> had a really, really, really close eye. You know, that's that preacher's kid mm. on way I grew up because I could always remember my mom said, you're going to be an agent of change. You're going to be an agent of change. Wow. I'm like, what does that mean? I want to wow. be Beyonce. And she would always always say that, you know, I had one of those moms and I don't know if you guys are listening that came in the room and and anointed your head with oil. Okay. Before you would go to school and you would be like, mom, what did you <laughs> he saw with her spiritual eyes all the time. Um, that's a beautiful story. And I think it's such an, an important word for parents and guardians or, or or people who have responsibility for for young people in any capacity, that the way you raise them up, the messages you give about social justice, those have a lacking, lasting impact. And it can either be positive or negative, right? So, so um whether you're spouting just racist backwards ideas or more often you're not talking about it at all right i think for most people it's not that they are saying um you know hurtful things about other people or people groups it's mostly that i don't know how to talk about it i don't know enough about the issue so i don't i just won't bring it up that leaves an impression too but what you're saying is that you grew up in this context where your your parents were very conscious of you being conscious socially conscious justice activism minded and even to the point of saying you're going to be an agent of change which indeed mama prophesied and she was right (laughs) So I want you to tell our, our listeners a little bit about Faith Leaders of Color Coalition. Right. So I talk about my upbringing to 18. I went to college at Dilly University in New Orleans, oh. and I was what you call a hurricane baby. Hmm. So I had just entered college at the time, Hurricane Katrina was brewing and stewing. And my sister, I have a twin. My sister uh, and I were there. 
And we had to make the very hard decision of leaving our HBCU that we had worked so hard to to be accepted in and actually um, be located be located to uh, Baton Rouge at LSU. So LSU is where I graduated. Go Tigers! Okay. Um, but LSU is also where I started to experience mm. some discrimination yep. and racism, and saw the difference and the importance of Black people huddling together. So if there have been any Black people that go to PWIs, you know um, the richness and the sacredness of huddling together at the African-American Cultural Center or the yes. Black Student Union. Those things are super important. On our way back, me and my sister, uh, on our way back home from uh, one of our Thanksgiving trips, uh, we were stopped by six state troopers in yeah. Hammond, Louisiana, uh, lights flashing and all. We're just little college, little frail girls. I think we were no more than about 20. And they never told us why they stopped us, but they stopped us. They searched our cars. They cut open our trunk. Um, they searched our bodies. Um, and then at the end, you know, my sister was in tears. I was the oldest by a couple of, you know, minutes. <laughs> and so I said, I had, I had to be strong for my sister. And so when I finally asked them why, they said, oh, you guys look like some drug dealer's girlfriend. So Aww. we just felt like we stop you and that was my like first not time. even particular people they were looking for or you, you just in general had a profile that they thought fit with drug dealers girlfriends right they didn't say anything oh about our crazy. play or and, and again we were it, we were 20 and 20 we were 20 so we were really young and so we just kind of you know we didn't understand what was happening in that moment but when we got back home, that's when our parents kind of said, you know, you can be college educated. You can come from a good family. You can yeah. not have any of those experiences growing up. And that still comes knocking on your door because that's the world we live in and particularly the South mm. that we live in. Now, the South has some really great things about it. I think uh, Black people have added to the richness and the culture of the South, music, food and different things like that. But there is also a South that holds on. To an old South and really, really wants to win at something because they didn't win <laughs> in a war against their country. Come on. So they want to win, win at other things, right? Even if that means um, the American death penalty system, which my, my, is. My, look how that worked. Okay, come on. <laughs> which is, which is um, why I began my work to address and answer questions and dig deeper into our American capital punishment system, which I call our American, our American death system. Mm. Um, I was really inspired by Ida B. Wells and mm. how she began her crusade against lynching because her friends were lynched at people's groceries, people's yeah, groceries in Tennessee, yeah. you know, Otis Moss, Thomas, all the, not Otis Moss, but her friends that were lynched. Um, and she began this campaign and she began through writing and she was ultimately driven out of Memphis, Chicago. And I think she went up to, to New York, you know, better than this, you know, Jamar, you know, this. <laughs> so I was encouraged by, by that because abolition is still needed today. And mm -hmm. what I am doing with the Faith Leaders of Color Coalition is extending the access of policy information, legal information directly to Black and Indigenous clergy who often have been kind of the props mm. 
that some folks use when they want to pass a bill, when they want to stand on the steps of the Capitol, when they need sign-on letters, but not really inviting them in on that participatory uh, process of policy and really making uh, legal strategical decisions. So that is what FLOP does. We are two years old right now. Um, It was founded and conceptually organized by me, a Black woman from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, So the support that I've gotten so far has just been overwhelming. Mm. I think people still wrap their arms around women, Mm. around Black organizers and Black founders, especially when it's a purpose. So. Block has been working. You know, we we still need a lot of support, but um, I'm so encouraged by our flock supporters. We have a sociocracy model, so we have flock circles. Wait, wait, wait! Run that back because that's a new term to me. Sociocracy. I like that. <laughs> Unpack that. We have a so- yeah, we have that type of model where we have circles in various states where okay. we have state leaders and uh, faith leaders, clergy that are all working together to address either litigation, legislation, public education. So we have different listening tours of exonerees that we bring from mm. witnesses or others to really share the facts of the American capital punishment system, because that's what we're addressing. We're addressing the states having that right to execute and kill someone. We're we're asking those questions. When you have states that are are biased already, um, prosecutorial misconduct, a lot of the prosecutors in several counties still mirror those of white men who were um, at the front of racial terror violence when it came to mobs of lynching people. Um, We have now 27 death penalty states. Uh, We have 23 non-death penalty states. And as I mentioned before, we're kind of watching Pennsylvania and Ohio because they have abolition bills on the floor to see if they will be 24. Um, Black people are only 13% of the U.S. population but they represent 34% of those who have been executed in the mm. United States. And also in Louisiana. Black people alone. You're saying black people, 13% black of the people. U.S. population in general. 34% of those, those who have been executed, executed Good since Lord. the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. So thank you to the organizers um, in the early 70s who were able to abolish it for a short period. And Southern states began working actively to uh, have states' rights to uh, let's talk impose, about that history a little bit. Can you tell us just about that that nineteen seventies period? First of all, how did it get ab- abolished for a minute, and then how did it come back? What what were those forces? Right. So there were some really great organizers that were on the ground in the seventies, and you know, I wasn't born in the seventies, but the seventies was the time of like awakening and yeah. really wanting. Free people right. It was post-King, right? It was post-Civil um, Rights Movement. So this was a time that folks just wanted, they wanted change. They wanted uh, humanity. They wanted dignity to be restored back into the country. And so in 1970, between 1972 and like 1975, uh, the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional. Whoa. You know, the Supreme Court deemed it cruel and unusual, unconstitutional. But quickly, and I believe Florida, I think Florida and Georgia were kind of in a competition 
um, the death penalty was imposed again because um, they had to show show reason that it's a reason for us to actually impose the death penalty. We're not going to do it um, cruelly. We're not going to do it in- inhumane, but we desire the death penalty to be applied. So this goes into like states' rights. Um, so even though... Uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Even about uh, Roe versus Wade, there are states that can overturn and to say, as citizens of this state, we are using this practice for our citizens, and it still makes sense for us. Right. So that's what happened um, in 1976 when it was reinstituted um, in the South. Mm. States that held on to lynching. EJI has a really great map of the states that held on to lynching and, and the yeah. states that are now holding on to the most heinous forms of execution. So that's kind of the history and that's what happened. And that's why I'm so hopeful because it was, yeah. um, it was ruled out before. That is so such hopeful. a, exactly. That is, that is a magnificent example of why we continue to work for change because in this particular field of the death penalty, we actually saw that there was success. There was effectiveness. If only for a brief time, still, it it is a sign that it's possible. So that's really important history. Let's go even further back historically. Um, Let's talk about why we have, let's talk about the connection between the death penalty, slavery, and lynching, if if, if, if you can. So I just want people to just help give, give us a context for why it seems to be such a resilient practice in our nation. And that's not coming out of nowhere. There's a context for it historically. So you can take that question in, in any direction you want. I'm a historian. I hate questions that are so broad because you can go anywhere. But I'm asking you can just pick and choose what you think is important. And you, you're going to have to help me. You're going to guide me in this conversation as well. <laughs> are the historian, so I'm giving that word back to you. There are so many vestiges of slavery yeah, that have on. left education. Um, I would even push it as far, and you would too. Religion and mm. our religiouses, um, our housing, um, the way we are even zoned and gerrymandered, right, in certain areas. But when we talk about the criminal legal system and the abolishment of slavery, and shortly after that, the Black Codes and vagrancy laws were established. So if you were just walking down the street, you were criminalized. Mm -hmm. Standing in front of your house, you were criminal. If you didn't have anywhere to live, you were homeless. A lot of those things um, cause you to to be incarcerated, right? So it wasn't a medical issue or a health issue or a housing issue. Um, as a black person after slavery, it, it, it was you were criminalized for those things. And if you're criminalized for those things, you know people profit off of bodies that are now under the rule of the state, which breeds our prison industrial complex that we have now and that many are fighting for, including myself, um, that's that's what we get. We get that hierarchy and control over Black bodies and Black movements. Yes. Some folks just, some folks just need it. They just yeah. couldn't, couldn't understand the concept that Black people were first people and yeah. they were free. And we know this for Juneteenth. In Texas, folks didn't even know that they were free. Until a couple of years, 
couple of years later. And that just goes to that autonomy and that control. But I always say that capital punishment and the death penalty is at the herald of our criminal justice system and everything else kind of, you know, comes out of that. And mm. until we death and our need for death in this civilized nation, we can't really address all these things in its totality. Um, and I won't get too deep into current events, but um, you have a country that currently now supports um, the death of, of a certain individuals, mm. um, you know, political things and treaties mm. and things like that. But we as a country, we have to establish like our identity. There are so many countries that look at Americans like, but you still kill people. Right. Right. Land is free and home of the what? Because you killing folk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think that gets to to what else I, I was going to ask, because I understand, you know, you're you're raised up as a change maker. You have this very disruptive encounter with law enforcement in college. But I wanted you to more explicitly bridge the connection between that background and specifically focusing on the death penalty. So you mentioned, you know, kind of that's the thing out of which a lot of other things flow. But I wonder if you could connect that link to your specific work, why why you were burdened in particular to oh. abolish the death penalty. Jamar, you just kind of bring it out of bring it out of people, right? Good, Thank yeah. You. <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, like I said, I didn't experience racism directly growing up. But when I had that encounter at 18, um, it also opened up the door to kind of like Pandora's box. Like, mm. is it up? that I've been been missing. Uh, so I start reading a lot. Um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow yes. is a really great book that I've read. Um, Shane Claiborne has a really great book, Executing Grace. You have a really great book, The Color of Compromise. But yeah, I started reading a lot of books that opened my mind up to how um, people experience life differently from how I experienced life. I had no, no interest and attacking the death penalty, right? Because mm. people are not concerned about the death penalty. It's not something that people talk about a lot. Um, people are talking about mandatory minimums and youth justice and bail reform. But the death penalty is something that we almost have to kind of like push up to the front forefront and say, hey, what about the death penalty? Um, I began working at an organization in Memphis, Tennessee called Just City. And at the time, Just City was the only criminal justice reform organization in uh, Shelby County. So in West Tennessee, it was really the only one that was doing that type of work. So from doing that type of work, I 20% did, um, thanks to Stacey Rector, um, some organizing with uh, death penalty abolition, death penalty education. And I primarily talked to pastors hmm. because you know, in the South, that the pastors and the church, even still, because people yes. like to say the church is not relevant, Come but on. even still, Talk the about church, it. the black church particularly, is at the cornerstone of our lifestyles, of our vitality. So I began to enter into churches and talk about the death penalty. And I got a lot of support from the Baptist mm. Ministerial mm. Alliance, uh, the Progressive National Baptist Convention. And I just really saw that there was a gap in my legal work and in my policy work of not inviting Black preachers who were at the forefront of several social justice movements to the forefront of our death penalty repeal, abolition, eliminating its use movement. 
So I, I really would say that these black preachers mm. are the ones that push me and to lean into issues related to our capital punishment system. Um, and they came in the form of public education, but also a really, really big case in Shelby County that we were able to win and, and get this individual off of death row uh, was mm. Purvis Payne. Okay. What was Purvis Payne's story? Hmm. Purvis Payne has a deep story. That's almost another another uh-huh. part. <laughs> but it just speaks to everything coming around full circle. My dad was pastoring a church in Millington slash Atoka, Tennessee. And in his church, it was a lot of members with the last name Payne. Okay. And this is when I was around 10 years old. My dad took this uh, pastorship, 10 or 11 years old, and just became really close with the pains. The pains kind of ran, ran the church. You know, my dad ran the church with the pains, ran the church. Yeah. You know how it is with uh-huh. church family. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, what happened was uh, 10, 15 years later, when I began my legal career, my policy career, um, I came across the case of Purvis Payne, who was an 18-year-old Black man in Millington, Tennessee, who was falsely accused, um, strong, strong evidence case of killing a white woman and her daughter in Millington, Tennessee, had no connection uh, to the case, uh, lives with intellectual disabilities, was always taught to just help and serve heard somebody whimpering and came in there and wanted to help and then quickly realized, oh my gosh, they may pin this on me in the 1980s is what happened. And so for more than 30, almost close to 40 years, he has remained on death row until 2020 when we were able to mobilize with the Church of God in Christ. Shout out to the Church of God Mm -hmm. in Christ. Convocation in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, this is uh, this was Purvis Payne's denomination. His father, Bishop Payne, was actually a superintendent. Wow. Uh, we were able to mobilize the Church of God in Christ. You know, the Church of God in Christ brings money to Memphis. Yes. And really confronts DA Amy Weirich with saying, you need to look at this case hmm. again because fingernail clippings were missing. So many things that were missing. Um, from the prosecutor's office that we weren't able to attain. DNA was tested and there was other DNA found at the scene. Mm. Um, so it was just so many things involved in his case and factors involved in his case that proved his innocence. We weren't really successful in the courts, but we were successful in the Tennessee General Assembly okay. for a passing an intellectual disabilities bill which Mr. Payne did fall under. And so now he is off of death row. He's eligible for parole, I believe, in about four to three, three to four years. Oh, wow. I think that's important on so many levels. One, the human side of this issue. A a lot of times we think about it strictly in terms of policies and laws on the books, and we forget the human impact of this. And uh, now you're talking about a family and an individual who are are all caught up in the criminal legal system because someone they love is is in it. Secondly, you are talking about the effectiveness of organizing of yeah. because and I think that's so important because we can so often get discouraged in this justice work when we don't mm-hmm. see the law change or don't see the policy changed or even experience backlash and maybe go backwards on some things. Here are examples, narratives where there is effectiveness. Of course, we're not all the way where we want, 
but there's progress, right? So I think we should look at these stories as progress. The third way, reason I think this story is so important is because you bring in the intellectual disabilities portion. Can you talk about the relationship between people who are sentenced and, and currently on death row and intellectual disabilities? Well, first, uh, shouts out to Tennessee for understanding. You know, it's, it's not a lot of things that Tennessee gets right in, <laughs> in policy areas, but right. in this specific area, uh, Tennessee did get it right with the thing, and you know, thanks to the Black Caucus, um, the Tennessee Tennessee General Assembly, and others for really paying attention to this matter and getting us up to the standards of the rest of the nation. So. Thankful, thankful for Tennessee for that. Um, intellectual disabilities, which was formerly uh, addressed as mental retardation, um, speaks to uh, the developmentally de- the developmental delay that an individual may have and process as they go throughout life. And when we see death sentences that are sought, first of all, you are more likely to receive a death sentence if you are black, and also if your victim is white. And mm-hmm. I encourage to visit the Death Penalty Information Center. They have some really um, informative reports that talk about race and the death penalty, intellectual disabilities and the death penalty, severe mental illnesses and the death penalty. So there's tons and tons of intersections. Even if the death penalty wasn't on your radar, if poverty is, if severe mental illnesses and even youth at times when death sentences are sought, when people are 17, about to be 18, right? But he's about to be 18. Um, those things are, are really important and the things that we address. But intellectual disabilities laws are, are starting to gain attention and traction in a lot of different states because people are starting to look at Atkins, uh, um, Atkins, versus, Atkins versus Virginia, the Supreme Court case that said you cannot execute someone with intellectual disabilities. So um, that's, and again, it just speaks to the Supreme Court saying this is something that doesn't need to happen, but states quickly kind of reinstating standards of proof and things like that. So folks um, can actually use, use the death penalty. So that's what's happening right now with intellectual disabilities. We're starting to have more conversations with lawmakers and educating them on what intellectual disabilities are because a lot of people just don't understand what intellectual disabilities is from severe mental illnesses and they are two totally different things. But this is something that we we look at as an intersection on eliminating the use of the death penalty. I think that's just so critical for folks to understand because we often talk about the injustice of the death penalty because of the racism involved, because of the classism involved, how it disproportionately affects poor people. But we don't often stop to think about intellectual disabilities, people with developmental delays of some sort, and and how they can get caught up in this and not even really understand what's happening to them or why. It's so it's 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 beyond tragic. So I'm I'm so grateful for your advocacy here. You mentioned before, you know, some people had I think you and I would both agree the erroneous idea that the church or religious bodies are no longer relevant or as relevant as, um in justice circles. So your organization is called Faith Leaders of Color Coalition. Why the focus on faith leaders? What is so important about religion, especially when some people would say it doesn't help that much or may actually, you know, cause harm. I am such a student of past suffrage and abolition and movement spaces that I believe that nothing just happens by happenstance and you have to build on the works of others. I'm building 
on the work of Harriet. I'm building on the work of Diane Nash. I'm building on the work of Bell Hooks. Um, and that's the reason why Flock is um, branded in lowercase letters, because I pay that homage to oh, Bill Hook oh, of good. wanting to focus the work on um, the, the actual policy issue versus the person. Um, mm. So I never want Flock you know, to be the main focus, but what we are addressing and what we're working towards and what so our good. mission is. Um, so it's, it's almost in church, hide us behind the cross and allow, <laughs> and allow the work to to go forward. So for me, I, I had to stand on the shoulders of those who have come before me. And there is no denying that the faith community, and I actually outlined that on my website of uh, Flock Justice, we have a toolkit and we talk about how the church has been disruptors and leading mm. uh, many movements um, from all the way to Nat Turner and how he was a preacher first until he started to see the injustices on other plantations. So that was kind of like one of the first dis- preacher disruptors, preacher disruptors. <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, there have been uh, so many and, and folks think, oh, you know, a lot of a lot of churches are complicit in American exceptionalism um, and white supremacy. But there are a lot of churches that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of churches that are shaping and changing their identity. I believe spirituality is so important. I make no apologies about being a woman of faith mm. and being guided by the Holy Spirit. And so with all of that said, um, of course, Flock has a bit of my identity, yeah. but it's also paying homage to those who have come before us in faith work and also faith movement work. You've mentioned a few times um, your identity, not simply being black, black but a black woman. How does being a woman in this work and, and, and a black woman at that uh, affect your work? What challenges or what opportunities uniquely does that present? You know, the word says God calls his sons and his daughters. And mm. that is something that I definitely want folks to have permeated and branded in their minds that uh, women, women got a lot to say, like Andre 3000, you know, the South got something to say. Women have a lot to say. Women are often the backbones, uh, often of the church. Um, Beyonce says they keep the tempo. Mm. So that's, that's important. Um, it feels, it feels good to be given this opportunity, but I feel like for such a time as this, I am positioned and postured to be uh, in this movement. And you also used the word at the beginning of our podcast, um, burden mm-hmm. and grieved. You know, our Savior was grieved with a task. So when I wake up some days, I don't always feel like pushing people to understand how killing people is wrong and questioning states to not kill people. But I have to continue to do that. I have to continue to stay on the wall yes. uh, to make where the people understand that um, listen to my message, mm. listen to my message and you will grow to, to love the messenger. But um, definitely I, I really, I really, I really uh, urge and challenge folks to start listening to black young activists, black young advocates and uh, black young lawyers and policy leaders that can add a lot to your congregations and um, the things that you are setting forth for the vision of your church. In addition to you, uh, are there other young Black women, two or three, that you would recommend folks go out and follow or listen to? 
Oh, so, so, so many. There are a lot of uh, Black uh, leaders, policy leaders in my own uh, organization that Mm. I work with, a lot of Black pastors in my organization that I work with. But yeah, it's a lot of um, people that are out there. Uh, I mentioned Michelle Alexander. Um, I also um, mentioned she's the author of the 1619 Project. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yes, Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a great one. Um, the, uh, the author of The New Jim Code. She's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about technology and racism. Ruha Benjamin, that's okay. her name. Um, so there are so many people that are working to address these issues. And the reason why I, I can't name them all is because some of them are unnamed. Like mm-hmm. some of your, your your listeners, they're just now meeting Joya for the first time. Yep. So you would really have to attach to the movement to really see some of our pioneers um, in this movement and in this space. You mentioned not always waking up and feeling like doing this work. And it reminds me of the concept of hope, which I think in justice and activism circles almost seems naive to talk about hope. People kind of look at you like, well, you know, just wait and see. You ain't been in it long enough. You want to be talking about hope. Um you strike me as a person who's filled with hope, um, who has hope. Can you talk about the role of, of hope in justice work and why it is not passe? The hand of justice turns slowly. Mm. And I think for me, I I celebrate incremental wins. Mm. I may not or you may not be around to see full abolition like what happened in the 70s, but we may see something. It is your duty. It is your responsibility to push us forward towards humanity and dignity. That's our responsibility. That's our burden. You may not see things. A lot of people like to see things kind of happen, you know, in one day. Rome wasn't built in one day. But I think it's really important to celebrate those small wins of in Virginia that definitely was abolished during COVID. Mm. And um, yeah, just just seeing people like Reverend Lakeisha Cook, who's also a pioneer that's kind of coming to my mind, who was very instrumental in um, abolishing the death penalty and organizing around abolishing the death penalty in Virginia, the death penalty being abolished in college. Colorado in 2021. And we're looking at abolition in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And who knows, it might be a state that speaks up because sometimes the climate is just right for it. And those bills kind of rise up out of nowhere. So I am, I am completely full of hope because I celebrate small wins. And if I never see it, I push someone a little bit closer to the finish line. Absolutely. And I know you've pushed our readers a little bit, our listeners a little bit closer to uh, getting involved and being concerned about this. Uh, In your role as executive director of of Flock and um, just your general advocacy work, what are some ways that folks listening right now can get involved and support this movement to abolish the death penalty? Right. So if you are a Black clergy member or a Black faith leader, the first thing you can do is go to Flock Justice. We have an active campaign right now for Black pastors to send a letter to President Biden urging him to commit the uh, commute the federal death sentences right now. This is something that he could do without Congress. He could do uh, without the House. He could do with the stroke of a pen. So mm-hmm. if this conversation 
Nation compelled you, you can add your name to our growing list of influential pastors and leaders. We're up to 150 right now, and we plan to deliver that next year. Please sign up on that letter. There are so many state actions Mm -hmm. that are going So again, I I push readers to uh, listeners to flockjustice.org. Block Justice has a lot of great materials and resources that will connect you to organizations like Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, um, wherever state that you land in, there is an organization. It's probably really small. It's probably Mm -hmm. under resourced, but that's all we need you to be able to address some of the actions that are in your state. And if you are a non-death penalty state, join us in the fight (laughs) to Mm -hmm. combat federal death penalty because we don't want a series of executions that happened um, when uh, President Trump was going out of office. There was just a series of dates that were set. So we still need you on a federal level. Wow. And I know this is like the perfect place to end, but there was one more question I was interested in. Uh, I noticed on uh, some of the events that you did, well, first of all, your group, Faith Leaders of Color Coalition, is very relationally based, very community oriented, a a big cornerstone of what you do are these Zoom calls with clergy. And it's more than, okay, let's talk business. It's connectional. It's relational. Um, I also noticed, which was interesting to me, that you were working really across partisan lines here. So I I think in our very um, politically divided time right now, that a lot of us, including myself at times, would say, well, there are limits (laughs) to relationships and who we'll work with. But you have reached across different aisles, um, particularly working with a group called conservatives um, concerned about the death penalty. Yeah. So tell us about that, how abolishing the death penalty and addressing this issue is is in some ways one of the few kind of bipartisan efforts there are right now. Flock members are across the spectrum, and I love that. We have flock members that lean far left. We have flock members that are moderate. We have flock members that are far right. So we welcome uh, flock members because, you know, that just goes to that age old saying black people, indigenous people. We are not a monolith. You Mm. cannot look at us and tell how we vote. Um, I vote for liberation and I vote for my people. (laughs) That's who I vote for. But, um, yeah, we've been able to establish some pretty strong partnerships um, from conservatives concern to moderates to evangelicals to others. So we've been able to gather um, different folks and and engage them in conversation on why they should care Mm -hmm. about abolishing and eliminating the death penalty. Um, Again, in Louisiana, there was a report by the Illuminator where $7.7 million was spent to sustain uh, Louisiana's death row, even though they have not executed anyone in 13 years. Mm -hmm. So when you think about housing, uh, people that are living under bridge, lost foreclothes on their home, um, that money could have been used to aid in different areas to make people whole people. So that's Mm -hmm. that issue of fiscal responsibility. Um, A lot of folks lean into a journey of hope conversations where we talk to the victims' families Mm -hmm. who say, see, no solace after an execution was done. It it didn't make them feel at peace. Um, What they really wanted was just their loved ones back and they could have used more mental health services uh, versus being uh, the person being executed. 
So those are things like that that we have to address. Um, Of course, race and the death penalty. We engage the disabilities community on intellectual disabilities. We engage people um, addressing poverty on how poverty and adverse childhood experiences ACEs may lead you to a place where a death sentence is sought. So there are so many conversations or what we call tools that we pull out our toolbox to get people to uh, buy in and really support uh, eliminating uh, the death penalty. Well, I'm glad that folks red and blue and everything else politically are, are seeing um, the urgency of this issue. And I think that that, ideological diversity that you have as part of flock that has a lot to do with you and your ability to bring people together um and form communities so i am so glad we got this opportunity to chat with you a little bit about this critically important topic of abolishing the death penalty so grateful for your work we're going to put all of your contact information in the show notes but for now what's the best way for people to follow you and keep up with your work definitely you know go to flockjustice.org um, we're on all social media sites. We're on Twitter, X at Flock Justice. We're on Instagram at Flock Justice. We have a Facebook group, Facebook group, the Faith Leaders of Color Coalition. So on all of those handles, you can reach out and someone will reach back out to you to engage you in conversation. Thank you so much for sharing of your time and your gifts with Footnotes. 